Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 this evening. Today, three of the international guests who are in Melbourne for the International Peace Australia Network 2017 National Conference will be on the program today. Oliver Van Colt, who's the Diego Garcia Indigenous Peoples Leader. Songhee Jail, artist and human rights activist from South Korea, talking about the situation on Jeju Island, south of South Korea, and the threats of war. Associate Professor David Vine, anthropologist at the Department of American University in Washington, D.C., talking about U.S. bases worldwide and his work with both the people of Diego Garcia and Jeju Island. And finally, Federal Greens Senator Janet Rice, talking about her fairly recent visit to Palestine. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A weak Jane listener, when I'm becoming sick and tired of this concerted campaign to out-satire satire, this time the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party's decision that it could not support a clean energy target that included clean energy, to prevent irresponsible warmers destroying jobs and growth in the great fossil corporations, a clean energy policy excluding clean energy must embrace coal. But in fairness to the hayseed and sheepshit lot, they're talking clean coal. Obviously, the call for towels to clean themselves came from spending the weekend with their heads buried in the conference coal sands. The party's possibly not eligible but a leader barnacle praised an impassioned uh, plea for coal to drive our energy policy right up to the end of the world from also possibly not eligible former minister for coal matt canavan of coal describing canavan of coal as one of true blawazi's great minds a fact which had somehow escaped us, but then Barnacle didn't qualify his statement by declaring the criteria on which his assessment was based, like comparing Matt's mind to his own, in which case it wouldn't necessarily put Matt in the Mensa class. Still good to see the government practising what it preaches about market forces and competition and all that by attacking a corporate fossil for practising what the government preaches and ignoring the government's invocations not to practise what the government preaches on which I'm prepared to make a bet with you. I'll bet after you woke up Saturday, you curled into fetal form, pulled the blankets over your head and contemplated whether to come up for air all weekend when your mind suddenly realised at that moment, at that very moment, Barnacle, what a thought, Barnacle was the big supremo of this country. There you go, I win. 
be honest, blankets up, cocooned in a little could things get worse world, a muffled go back to where you came from under the sheets, on which the possibility we had a big supremo who is ineligible to have his bum on the plush seats, let alone be big supremo, surprise, surprise. In the past week, the government has announced a spate of infrastructure spending in Barnacle's own electorate, including three new road projects. Surely this doesn't mean they think there might be a by-election in New England shortly, does it? Uh, no, no. Just their turn, like the turn of all that massive infrastructure spending in Barnegas electorate just before the last election. Pig meat with crackling in barrels on every farm. That other government giant mind of giant minds, Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, said he was frustrated and angry at that out-of-court settlement of a damages claim by Manus Island prisoners. Uh, sorry, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Pete is preventing from drowning. But, he added, all of the legal advice I got meant we were left with no other alternative. Now, in case the implications of that have bypassed Pete's mind, Pete, it means the plaintiffs had a strong case, and you didn't. Well, we didn't, seeing it's our money he's playing with, about 90 mil of our hard-earned down the gurgler. Still, that and the multi-million costs of running Pete's concentration camps is far more efficient and sensible than letting these people live and work here. B, dare we say it, be members of our society. There are some already here, of course, we wish weren't members of. See, we know the government knows it is blameless and everything bad is down to the opposition. And the opposition knows it is blameless and everything bad is down to the government. Well, the big example of this truism this week bringing us to the some we wish weren't members of, from the Minister for Train Killers, Train Killer Merchandise, Christopher Payne in there, over an election redistribution that will cost South Truvluosi a seat, quite possibly his. The sole reason South True Blue Aussie was losing a seat, Christopher spat petulantly, was because of the Socialist Party. The depths of their Machiavellian scheming. A get Christopher plot. If it is his seat, poor Christopher will have to plot in turn to get someone else's. After all, he knows he's irreplaceable. Our irreplaceable fourth estate guardian, Lord Rupert of Wapping, came up with yet another huge scoop, revealing the bloody pejorative Dan government has withdrawn millions of corporate welfare from the loonies. No, no, that's not right. Uh, sorry, sorry. Logies, Logies. And, of course, Channel X Lord Kerry of Waterhouse and the Crook Casino and other corporate beneficiaries of the Logies couldn't possibly be expected to meet the costs of promoting themselves. And Bert Newton, whose deeply considered views we must and do always respect, said it was worse than, or at least the equivalent of, losing the Melbourne Cup or the Grand Final. Till then, I hadn't realised it was quite so serious what I'd been missing. And Steve Vizard said the disaster had the fingerprints of political interference all over it. And I thought, perhaps a slightly unfortunate term, one would think a convicted corporate crook should consider skirting around the term fingerprints. Thursday, Lord Rupert had a comprehensive coverage of this week's hurricane, Hurricane Irma, heading toward US of Terra Firma. 
And that was the story. Florida buttressing itself for the onslaught. No mention of the disaster occurring across Caribbean islands. Well, again, real people are real news. Non-real people, those who don't matter in the corporate scheme of things, as Donald Trump or the poor who just loves the biggest ever, best ever, especially describing his own popularity, after all, even worst ever, is the best in a way, said truthfully, truthfully for once that Irma was the biggest hurricane ever. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, for at least a century, and used it to attack the warmists who still believe in climate change based on nothing more reliable than science. Donald, real quote, satire out-satired again, stood in front of a fossil power plant in Dakota and declared the Paris Accord was a job killer, bad, very bad, and the North Dakota pipeline open for business, good, very good, and that his thoughts and prayers were with the hurricane victims without blushing. Obviously, his thoughts hadn't run to the obvious, which, if addressed, might eliminate the need for prayer, although presumably he prays to himself. As yet another tragedy unfolds in Myanmar, with thousands of non-people Rohingya fleeing persecution, my word, there's a lot of non-people in the world, isn't there? The non-people of the West Bank and Gaza, the terrenulius non-people right here in True Blue Aussie, to name a few. Non-people Rohingya fleeing persecution and attempted genocide. The country is fortunate it has a Nobel Peace Laureate to prevent the slaughter and dislocation. Wrong sin won't see, who took a leaf from Donald's, uh, Donald Trample the Poor's book, declaring the coverage has been a huge iceberg of false information. So apparently the thousands we see on our telly every night describing atrocities must all be actors paid by the forces of evil out to overthrow the Myanmar generals. Given we wouldn't question the word of a Nobel laureate, then the alleged disregard for her election and persecution and house arrest for years by the very general she's now palsy-walsy with must have itself been a huge iceberg of false information. The poor misjudged generals. Disrespectful comment from another Nobel Peace recipient, South, Africa, South Africa's Desmond Tutu, who apparently feels the Rohingya issue just may not be an iceberg of false information, decrying the fact that if the price of being in government must be silence, then the price is too high. Now, just when we thought the answer to this lingering problem, those who know about these things keep telling us, of slow wages growth was pretty simple, simply increase wages, more problems. Just when record profits indicate maybe workers could receive a little more, the sundry chambers of profits have been forced to announce soaring electricity prices mean poor caring employers won't be able to pay workers a little bit more. There's always something, isn't there? Poor Innes Welloff, one of our favourites, the primo of the Trubaluazi Industry Profits Group, said higher bills for the great corporates plus higher bills for workers' households preventing them from spending on retail was a double-edged reason for workers not being paid a little more. Although, finally, Innes knows it's worse than that.
The law, the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it, is far too standard toward evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. We must change the law to give caring employers a bit of fairness, presumably so they can pay workers a little more. The reason they can't seems to be the evil unions themselves. Minor changes like getting rid of that crippling clause that no worker can be worse off under an agreement. What an attack on caring employers that is. The unions, in a said, direct quote, no embellishment needed, want to create a future that would be utopian for them, but dystopian for the community as a whole. It's frightening, isn't it? Dystopia. But we did say Barnacle was big supremo for a while this week. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And don't forget to get up early tomorrow morning. Be up by nine and listen to City Limits with Kevin and his friends. It's 15 minutes past four. Join Ruminations on Thursday, September 14 at 12pm to 1pm as we head down the river to Southbank. For this special broadcast, we'll be handing over the mic to people currently experiencing homelessness and staying in crisis accommodation. So tune in on Thursday, September 14, between 12 and 1 p.m. as Ruminations goes to Southbank and hear the voices and stories of people currently experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. Three of the international guests at the 2017 IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network National Conference, held in Melbourne over the weekend of the 8th to 10th of September, came from very different cultures and areas of the world, but have important connections. Olivier Bancold, known as the Nelson Mandela of the Chagosian people, whose homeland is the Indian Ocean island of Chagos, near to Diego Garcia, is one, together with Sung Hee Chow, South Korean artist and human rights activist. They participate in campaigns to rid their countries of U.S. bases. And the third, Associate Professor David Vine from the Department of Anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. He is the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Have Harmed America and the World, and Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military Base on Diego Garcia. In 2011, he interviewed Sung Hee Chow in prison in South Korea. They came together at the studios here at 3CR last Thursday to talk about resistance to US bases. I spoke first with Olivier and began by saying that, unlike other places in the world where there are US bases, Diego Garcia has no inhabitants resisting the US military and asked him to relate the story of the forced removal of all the residents in the early 1970s, how it was achieved and by whom. First of all, thank you to give me this opportunity to address on behalf of my people, our people from uh, Chagos, and now known as British Indian Ocean Territory. 
We were originate from those islands with the main island, Diego Garcia. Chagos Archipelago consists of 65 islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean. We were people from African origin, slave. We were living in peace and our money. Suddenly, in 1965, everything started with our climate between U.S. and U.K. and U.K. and Mauritius in order to find a way for a U.S. military base. We had been uprooted from our motherland in order to make place for that play. But it's good to let you know that only Diego Garcia and one third of Diego Garcia, which is being used for U.S. military base, even that, those people on the other island have been forced to leave their island in order to, to just leave the place as it is. This is the reason why we as people, native from Chagos, have been uprooted even that the base, U.S. base, is only on Diego Garcia. And what we can't understand that on our birthplace there are other people who can live and work Whereas we as natives, we don't have the right. This is why we had been uh, having many court cases against the British government for all the unlawful being done to us. And this is still continue. You were four years old. Do you have any memories? Uh, small memories because uh, the time when I left Chagos, Peros Banos, I was four. I still remember what uh, my parents how life was on Paris Banos. And I can't forget what my grandfather gave me as a small a, a drum, which called Ravan, because we have a special, our tradition about music, it's very different to others. Day by day, I, I've been learning. And the reason for us to leave Chagos, because of my sister, who had been hurt by, the, by a Wilcott, both my parents decided to go to Mauritius to have treatment, but in a view to return back, because the key had been left. The key was with my father, because all our belongings were left on, on Paris Banos. And fortunately, when we arrived in Mauritius, three months after my sister passed away, and when we decided, my parents decided to return, at the time that we, we learned that it would be impossible for us to return. Mauritius is a long way away from your homeland. It's a very long way because uh, from Mauritius to go to Chagos, it's four days by sea, by boats. But even that, everywhere we are in this world, it's so important. As we always say that, sweet home, sweet home. It's something that uh, you cannot forget about. Uh, it's something that we cannot ignore. Your place of birth. It's uh, about your roots, about your life, as it was on day. And it's so especially about our dignity as human beings. What were the people, your parents, your grandparents, what were they told about the reasons why they were being forced off their land? Yeah, the reason is on, in order to satisfy UK and US, because at that time, because in the Second World War, America just looked out for a place to build a, a US base for against uh, Soviet Union. Let me tell you that... Uh, in the first position was not uh, Diego Garcia. It was an island called Adabra, where we have a population of giant turtles. When the expert go and visited Aldabra, 
they just decided don't disturb these turtles. Second mission, arriving on Jigugasha, they finally situated, tried to see that the Jigugasha is found in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and it will be appropriate for them to build the U.S. military base. And they decided that the first time it was decided that the island would be divided in two parts. One part where we will have the army and Americans, and the second part will be Sagoshan. And they changed their mind with some things that they decided, as they said in some uh, document, confidential, were well been declassified to say that all the people have to go and leave the place at, for the American to be free to build the U.S. military base And this time. And what happened? Everyone had been asked to come to the manager office, and they had been told that they have no choice, they have to leave. The way they did with the Sagotian was very uh, inhuman, the way they killed dogs. Tell the story of what yeah. they did to the animals. Yeah, wh- what they did with the animals, they just asked everyone because according to them, there were some stray dog. It was not stray dog, you know. Everyone, you are British, you are American, you are Australian, your relation to your, your pets, to your dogs, it's so important, even what you are. They decided uh, to ask everyone who have a dog to bring their dog, and people in Chagos was thinking about uh, to have a special uh, vaccine uh, for the dogs. But unfortunately, they put it in a, a large room, which we call calorifer, where we used to burn coconuts in order to turn it into oil. And they just used two big Land Rovers, just uh, put it uh, on charge, and then uh, gas this dog, and just uh, have a, a hole, a common hole, put every dog in that, and just... Uh, buried them. This is a way of how they did to frighten people, you see, and this is why we, we condemn this. And uh, as you know, in Europe, uh, everyone, especially in UK, everyone have a special consideration for their animals, and we can't understand how they did with our dogs. And this is the way, and at the same time, we have a plane, US uh, plane just... Uh, just fly very low, just in order to frighten people. And we were asked that we need to go. We need to go. First of all, the choice was from Diego Garcia to go to Peros, Banos, and Salomon, because Diego Garcia will be danger of the U.S. military base. And even when most of the people choose to go to Peros, Banos, and Salomon, one year after, the same story happened on Diego Garcia, I repeat, on Peros, Banos, and Salomon, that is that every people have to leave forcibly removed from their homeland to go to Mauritius or to Seychelles. What did the people take with them? Oh, people are trying to voice out, but uh, there is no any reason. They say that, you know, the main owner of the plantation, the firm who, who just was occupied, got a compensation in order to close his, co- his, his company. And uh, there is no choice. Even we are surrounded with the sea, but the most important is about job. What, how we will do? What and about your possessions that you had? Could you take them with you? Not all, because all our belongings, because, you know, we don't have a very big key harbor, except on Diego Garcia. But on Paris Banos, it was not the case. We have only small jetties, but we have to transport from a small boat to the big vessel, which is not possible for us. That means that most of our belongings we have left on, on Chagos. 
Was there a lot of fear because of what they did to your animals, that if, if you arced up or you know, said, we're not going, that could happen to you? Was that what they were trying to instill in you, a fear? Yeah, of course, they will use force because the way they, they did... And what were they, dogs. soldiers? Or who, who, who were those who carried out that forcible removal? Yeah, it's both the UK and US. Soldiers? Yeah, yeah, both, both of them use this, this possibility to say that we need to leave. And, you know, they, they tried to make many things which were not uh, good because the way they, they just... Uh, let people, because there was a, a link between Mauritius and, and Chekhov in the past, because all provision came in from Mauritius. Unfortunately, everything stopped. At the way that uh, when we talk about genocides, I can say that there is a real reason of genocide, because it's something that the way that they, uh, they had been doing in order to just uh, make something not to encourage people to, to continue take advantage of his, his, his uh, fundamental rights, to say that uh, we don't have any choice, we have to leave, because otherwise we will die, everyone will die, and we were obliged to go on the boat. How many and, people? Oh, it's more than 3,000 people, you know. Well, you couldn't all go to one place. Where were you taken? Oh, we were taken in Mauritius and Seychelles. Majority was uh, going to Mauritius. Arriving in, Mar- in, in Mauritius on the harbour, many have stayed for more than three days on the boat because they don't have any place to live. Those who go to Seychelles, they get married in, with Seychelles origin. And uh, they just, uh, it was very difficult also to integrate them, tell, as it, it was in Mauritius. To integrate in Mauritius society, it was so difficult because our way of living in Chagos is very different because life was wonderful in Chagos. Everyone has his job, everyone has his, his own house, everyone has his hobbies after working hours we used to go to see. There is, there is a sense of one family living. Everyone considered as one family. But arriving in Mauritius was very different. First difficulties faced by Sagoshan to find a place to live where we have to rent, because in Chagos, more of our day, we don't use money, because most of our money was on our saving account. But arriving in Mauritius, every month we have to pay rent, which is, was very, very difficult, and to find a job, because the most difficult, because education itself had been introduced in 1965, where many people don't have a level of education. This is their disadvantage, you see? And... People, it was very difficult to find a job. You can have a job like a maid working to clean houses, like a laborer, but will not have a qualification uh, which will allow you to have a good job. And uh, in Mauritius, the most job is very heavy job, like dockers or like uh, fishermen. And the type of fishing which we, we, we practice in Chagos is very different from Mauritius because in Chagos we just go to fish and then return back home. Whereas in Mauritius, when we go, we need to go on a fishing campaign on vessel for one month, leaving all your families uh, without knowing what happened, you see, which is very different. For This is why it's so difficult for us till now to integrate ourselves, even we have been living for more than 30, 14 uh, years, it was so difficult for us to adapt ourselves in Mauritius. What we want as all human beings, be able to live on our birthplace. And how many people were sent to the Seychelles? At that time it was about uh, 200. 
As what? I told you, most of the majority was in Mauritius. Why were 200 sent to Seychelles? Yeah, Seychelles because they got in the last, you know, there was under the occupation of Mauritius. Chagos was a dependency of Mauritius. There was, as I told you, was the link of, uh, from Mauritius to, Ch- to Chagos. But at the time when the UK government decided to create the British Indian Ocean Territory, at the time they just uh, nominated uh, someone, a commissioner, which was half resident in Seychelles, because at that time even Seychelles was not having yet his independence. The company which uh, taking over after the Mauritian one was a Seychellois called Paul Moligny. He was the one owner of the company. He used to have uh, Seychellois coming to Chagos to work, and those Seychellois get married with Sagotian, and those of the 200 Sagotian who went to Seychelles, they have a link. Either they got married or they live as partners. They choose to go to Seychelles. I'd imagine the people were very demoralised at the start. How long was it before the fight back started? We're not going to put up with this. We need to get back home. Ah, oh, the fight started just after coming to Mauritius. It was uh, a, the last group came in 1973, where one year after, because the time when we arrived in Mauritius in 1968, Mauritius was uh, facing a very great difficulties about employment about uh, all the data adaptation. As, uh, it was at the time where many Mauritians who have a, a level of education used to go to settle in uh, Australia, in UK, in Europe, everywhere, because there was a, f- a problem facing Mauritius. At the same time, we arrive. At the time, we have riots in Mauritius because we have some problems, racial problem, ethnic uh, problem, ethnic between one community toward another. We have to face everything. At that time, Mauritius become independence. It was so difficult for us. And let me tell you, because the man was very afraid of policemen, because without making anything, you can have trouble with policemen, because as I told you, we had riots at that time. But the decision had been taken by women. This is why I have a very big respect for women. Sagotian women is something very symbolic for me and for my, for my struggle and struggle of my people because they just lead the, the, the campaign. I can just mention about Lisette Talat, Sarlija Alexi, my mom, Rita, and all other Sagotian ladies who get the courage to start the struggle. To and what did they do? They just said, uh, instead of letting our children living without any foods, going to bed without anything, whereas in Chagos we all live in peace and harmony. We have everything. Uh, we are surrounded with the sea. We have our food, everything. As in Mauritius, we are facing, it's better for us to return back to Chagos. This is why they use this uh, slogan to say that, return back Chagos, return back Diego Garcia. And they started with anger strike, with uh, a demonstration, with uh, many action against the Martian government. And they even say that without commit any offense, we want to go to jail. Because when going to jail, we will be sure that we will get something to eat instead of nothing. I have a very big respect for those, those women. And those women had been leading the Sagotian struggle, which had been known everywhere now. 
And what did they achieve in those early years? That changed that uh, put more people being concerned about the situation to get involved uh, in a way or another to bring the support and have a international dimension. As uh, I told you, uh, I'm the first person together with uh, Lisette Talat and others to start legal procedure against the UK government based on the British Ordinance 1971 who procured us by returning to Chagos. We have been succeeded on that and, and this with all the press coverage because it's without press coverage, without uh, as a awareness of the worldwide, it was so difficult to know what wrong UK government did to his own people. This is by the way when the, the court uh, had heard about our case and we have a very good coverage. Everyone known about the situation of the Sagusian people and we are very proud today. So it's because of your mother that you became an activist? Of course, of course. My mom always encouraged me and she always encouraged me to have a level of education. I've been so lucky to have uh, a study in Mauritius level of secondary school, which uh, I tried to improve my English day by day, because uh, my first interview was very bad, but uh, I tried to improve it every day. I gave many interviews uh, with many well-known radio and TV, which had been giving me the strength. Let me tell you, I will not give up, and we will not give up. Tell us about some of those court cases, the battles and the results of those court cases. Yeah, the first court case, it was in 1970, when we decided to shoot the British government based on the British Ordinance uh, 1971, who said that uh, no native can return back to live on Chagos except American and British soldiers. And we protest against that. We won it on the 3rd November 2000. It was a very historical and symbolic date for us where the court rules in our favor to say that what had been done to us is unlawful. The most important, because the point, the defense point of the UK government to say that we were contractual workers. And what with all the leadings that we had been put forward by our lawyer, by someone called Cecil Nickenridge to say that we were permanent inhabitants. We were originated from Chagos because uh, if you just uh, turn the page into areas, we have a slave coming with the master to work in the coconut plantation on Chagos. And since that day, we have people living in Chagos. And no one can consider us as contractual workers. We are all more permanent. And the most important judgment to say, the judge recognizes us as belongers. It's so powerful because what is said by the UK and what decision have been taken by the judge, it's so important. It's at that time that, with the help of Jeremy Corbyn, which is now the leader of the opposition in UK, he support us to have a British citizen. But we never have anything on plate. We have been fighting for everything. But the most important is not about to obtain British citizenship. The most important for Sagotian is to have our fundamental rights and our dignity being recognized. We carry on. In 2004, the UK government came with a British Order in Council by rejecting what had been decided by the High Court to say the law that had to return as it was before. And we protest against that. We win. 
even on appeal also, they decided to go in the house of law. In the house of law, on a total of five law lords, we lost three against two, but we have never uh, lost hope. We continue. We have heard into the Supreme Court. And the, in 2010, the bring of a, a marine protected area to declare Chagos the largest marine protected area. It's a way only to say to prohibit Sagoshin to return back to the island. In the eyes of everyone in the world to say if Chagos is a marine protected area, it's only to protect the environment. But we say we are not against the protection of the environment. But what about human rights? It's a pretext of UK government to present the marine protected area instead of letting people return. We have been challenging it. And with that, we have the support of what has been revealed by WikiLeaks in the cable to say that it's a pretext not to let Sagoshan return because it was so pressure. Every day we got more and more supporters who came to support the struggle to say now enough is enough. Instead of giving good example, your government, UK government, are uh, punishing the right of Sagoshan and it's time to find a way. And many people joined the case and this is why they try to just turn it into another direction. And till now I can say we have ongoing cases going on in the Supreme Court and uh, the last thing that they came with a feasibility studies by KPMG UK to see whether it is allowed to let people return back. The KPMG report was done and it was published in January 2015 who declared there is no legal barrier to prevent Sagoshan returning home. And at that time, they take one year, just only last year, in November 16, they came out with a project to say they came with a, a fan package to give some money to Sagoshan in order for education, for training, for, but without returning to Chagos. This is the ongoing cases. We are challenging it. We have not accepted the offer of financial given by the government. We say that because our dignity is not for sale. It's something very important for us. You cannot try to just ask the conscience of people toward money. Finally, the issue that your island of Diego Garcia is being used for war, for maintaining war, for attacking countries around the world. How does that make you feel? We feel very upset, very shameful, because we don't want to get involved into what had been done, where prisoners had been kept in Diego Garcia. We are against B-52 and B-2 be take off from Diego Garcia to kill innocent people. It seems a shame for us even we are not participating in what they did, but our island is being used to kill innocent people. This is why. But what we said, we should put an end to that. Instead of where people, before the installation of the U.S. military base, people were living in peace and harmony. Is it not time to return as it was? This is why we are still continue for this. I've been speaking with Olivier Benkov from the Chagos Refugee Group who have been fighting to return to their homeland of the Indian Ocean, Chagos Archipelago, of which the largest island is Diego Garcia. Next, 
Associate Professor David Vine from the Department of Anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C., and the author of Island of Shame, The Secret History of the U.S. Military Base on Diego Garcia. My first question to David was when and how he became aware of the plight of the people removed from Diego Garcia and surrounding islands. Like most people in the United States, I knew nothing about the Chagossians and their history, very sad to say. I knew about the military base on Diego Garcia vaguely, but it was actually thanks to uh, my Aussie advisor in graduate school who uh, gave me a call one lucky afternoon in 2001 because she had been contacted by some lawyers representing the Chagossians who were at that point suing both the U.S. and British governments, and they needed a graduate student to do some research. And by a lucky set of coincidences, they found me. Where did you do your research to find out exactly what was happening? As an anthropologist, I carried out participant observation, ethnographic research with the Chagossians, living with them, going to school with them, going to work with them, eating with them, dancing with them in Mauritius and the Seychelles where they were exiled. And I was lucky enough to spend about eight months doing that research over a series of four years, uh, documenting the effects of the expulsion on their lives. And the impact of their being removed was still raw at that time? The impact of their removal has been and is profound. The impacts can be seen in many dimensions of life, psychological, social, cultural, economic, of course. For the most part, the Chagossians have remained the poorest of the poor in Mauritius and the Seychelles as marginalized outsiders living in in exile. What did you find out about the base and what it's been used for, what the Americans have been doing there over those years? Journalists aren't allowed to go there, are they? They're not, and that was an intriguing part of my research that I was studying something I couldn't see. And yes, indeed, no journalist has been there effectively since uh, the early 1980s. Learning about the Chagossians' history, I became interested in why the United States has a military base in the Indian Ocean in the first place. Uh, Does the U.S. need a military base thousands of miles from U.S. borders? And I began investigating the history of Diego Garcia and the U.S. involvement in the creation of the base and was able to document by digging up uh, files from the government archives and elsewhere, interviewing former government officials. I documented how it was U.S. officials, ultimately, who came up with the idea to build a base on Diego Garcia, who asked the British government to expel the Chagossians, who paid for the expulsion and then gave the final order. Uh, After the Chagossians were finally removed in 1973, the base over time grew into one of the largest and most powerful outside the United States, and certainly in the eyes of U.S. military officials, one of the most important because it's played key roles in launching a series of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan since uh, the late 1980s. And also the the way where it is in the Indian Ocean connecting the Middle East with Asia? Yeah, the reason U.S. officials were interested in in the island and the base from going back to the late 1950s 
is both its isolation, which provides some security, but its relative proximity to a large part of the world from southern Africa to the Middle East to South and Southeast Asia. Have you ever been able to interview any U.S. service people who might have worked there in the past and got their impressions of what life is like there? I have, and they essentially are are not told the true history of of the island and how the Chagossians were removed to make way for the base. There is a strange, bizarre sort of memorial to the Chagossians' lives that the U.S. and British militaries maintain. It's a the center of the capital of Diego Garcia was called East Point, and they still mow the lawn and keep the buildings there painted. Uh, and essentially, it's a, a place where uh, service members can go during their off time. But the full story of how the Chagossians were deported is untold. And I believe that the British government recently established a marine nature reserve there to try and make sure that the the people never return. That's exactly right. The British government announced it was interested in creating a marine protected area, and the Chagossians were quite concerned about this because they thought it was indeed a way to prevent them from ever returning, no matter what the outcome of the lawsuits that they were continuing to pursue against the British government. And the British government, of course, said, no, 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 this is just about protecting the environment. We love the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And then WikiLeaks released its thousands of cables, and there was one showing in black and white how British and U.S. officials negotiated and discussed how the marine protected area would be the best way to prevent the Chagossians from ever returning. Is that now international law, Marine Park? Is that being established? As far as I know, there really is no underlying international law for marine protected areas, and they are quite controversial in a number of cases. The Chagossians are now challenging the British government's establishment of this marine protected area. British courts have been used by the people during these years, many, many years, they've had many, many court cases. What's the support or what's the knowledge in Britain? Are you aware of what's been happening to these people? There is much better knowledge, greater knowledge of the Chagossians' plight and their expulsion in Britain than in the United States. I'm sorry to say about the United States, but um, it was as a result of the Chagossians' tremendous historic legal victories over the British government. Three times they've defeated the British government in the high court. Fortunately, the British government repeatedly appealed those those cases and the the suits are ongoing, but uh, that raised the Chagossians' profile dramatically and they have received a growing amount of support from Brits, from uh, people in the United States increasingly, and from people around the world. What's your role with the people now in 2017? I continue to work with the Chagossians quite closely, continue to conduct research uh, about their lives and about the the U.S. and British militaries and U.S. and British government's roles in the expulsion and in the ongoing maintenance of their exile, provide some assistance to the legal teams when I can um, or when they ask, and provide assistance to the Chagos Refugees Group in a range of ways. We now have a support group in the U.S. called Let Us Return USA that uh, is attempting to to build support for the Chagossians in the United States. So concerned about U.S. bases in other countries, particularly here in Australia? Deeply. 
Is it estimated how many there are? Indeed, this has been uh, another subject of my research uh, since being introduced to the, to the Chagosian story. I began asking why the U.S. has so many bases, and by my estimate, and I have a, a spreadsheet documenting this, there are about 800 U.S. military bases outside the 50 U.S. states in Washington, D.C., and that's a figure that comes from the Pentagon, Pentagon list itself uh, that I uh, supplement with bases that they clearly leave off their list. And we worry about Russia and China. How many bases have they got outside their country? China has a single base in Djibouti outside China, and Russia has a handful of, of foreign bases, mostly in the former Soviet republics and a few bases in, in Syria, which actually have played key roles in that conflict. There are a few other countries that have a handful of bases, Britain and France and their former colonies, but the United States has somewhere around 95% of the world's foreign military bases. Just finally, you're dedicated to continuing your work with the Chagosians? Yes, I am. I'm dedicated both toward continuing my work with them and, and toward uh, my work about U.S. military bases abroad and showing how quite in contrast to the long-standing claims that these bases are critical to U.S. national security, to global security, to Australian and other host nations' security, how in a range of ways they've harmed local communities, they've harmed members of the military, U.S. military, and they are actually in, in many cases increasing military tensions, and that's my central concern about the increasing U.S. military presence in Australia because it's part of a, a shift in U.S. emphasis toward Asia that I fear is, is only making war more likely and increasing tensions with China uh, that could result in a catastrophic military clash or indeed a war. The third person I spoke to who later attended the IPAN conference, that's the Independent Peaceful Australian Network Conference, was South Korean artist and human rights activist Sung Hee Choi. Sung Hee is one of many South Koreans putting their lives on the line against the now-completed base on Jeju Island and was jailed in 2011 for obstructing the construction. This small island is in the south of South Korea has been the focus of local and international activists protesting and resisting since it was announced that the South Korean Navy base would be built there in the pristine coastal waters. And, of course, that base is now used by U.S. and other countries. Sunghee, Jeju Island is now known as the Island of Peace. It hasn't always been that way, a violent and brutal history, the latest of which, which led to the recent construction of the Peace Park Museum and Memorial. Can you talk about the Jeju massacre in 1948? Uh, it was in 2005 that the island was designated as the Peace Island. And then uh, there was a brutal incident called April 3rd incident. About 30,000 islanders were killed brutally in a puppy South Korean government under the U.S. Army military government order. What was happening in South Korea at that time? It's a wrong and also important story that uh, you may know that uh, Korea was under the uh, Japanese imperialism for 36 years and Korea was liberated in 1945. 
so the, the after the Korea's liberation from Japan, you could imagine that how Koreans aspired an independent country. But uh, to the contrary of people's wishes, what happened was that the U.S. Army military government began to control the, the south part of Korea. And then it was the South Korea, the, you know, the politicians who wanted to have their own separate government, which means the Korea would be likely to be divided. And then people did not want it. They did not want a divided country after, you know, hardships of the Japanese colonialism. There was a May 10th election, which is for electing the separate South Korean government. The Jeju Island is the only region in Korea where people made a boycott to that election, which means Jeju Island was one of the hottest places to resist to the U.S. Army military government, and also the separation, the division of Korea. It was April 3, 1948, that about the 300 young people, which included uh, many intellectuals who had studied in Japan, you know, that during the Japanese colonialism, they had studied anarchism and communism, you know, and then when they returned back to their hometown, they did not want the separate government. Uh, they made a uprising in the dawn of April 3rd, 1948. And they made uh, two famous, uh, you know, the political statements. Uh, one of them starts with this sentence, when there is oppression, there is resistance. And then the another statement was to the policemen, to the fellow policemen, they appealed to the policemen that you should stand up with us. You are the same nation with us. The U.S. Army military government, they stamped the island as a red island, and then they ordered to shoot everybody. And then there was also a scorch operation, which is the most of the, the region of Jeju Island, uh, except for some of the coastal areas. So that's what happened. So the estimated numbers of being killed uh, were uh, about 30,000, uh, then some records say about 80,000. We do not know exact number of people who were killed, but at the time the population of Jeju Island was about 270,000, something like that. So you can imagine, you know, that one-eighth people were at least, you know, they killed. That's what happened. And then it is that incident is very related to Korea's division. Uh, you can realize later how that incident is also related to current conflict that you see uh, in the news. What's the situation on the island now? Are there any U.S. bases apart from the military base that the South Korean government has built? Are there any U.S personnel on the island now? Thank you for the important question. It was 2016, last year, that a South Korean Jeju Navy base opened to the public. What I want to emphasize is that for me, it is no more important whether it is a United States base or not. That's what I want to explain. This year, there were two U.S. destroyers came to uh, Jeju Island 
first one was March 25th and the second one was June 20. The first U.S. Aegis destroyer was U.S. Uh, 7, something like that. And then they came after war exercise within, you know, the Korea and Japan in the waters. And then the second Aegis, U.S. Aegis ship came to the Jeju Navy base to discuss about war exercise with the Korean Navy and also Canadian Navy. And then two days later, two Canadian frigates uh, came to the Jeju Navy base. What I want to say is that there is no official United States base in the Jeju Island currently. However, such South Korean bases are now being utilized for the United States strategy. How it is possible? It is because of U.S. and South Korea mutual defense treaty, South Korea mutual defense treaty, which occurred right after the Korean War and then became effective from 1954. And what happened was that if you see that treaty, the Article 4 says that the United States can use the territory, the sea, and then the air of the South Korea when it is needed. And then South Korea, it's a very funny word, can allow entry of the United States and you know, the military equipments and then the personals. That the South Korean bases can be used by the United States military and her allied countries like Canada, and I want to emphasize Australia here, and the New Zealand, and then Britain, France, and then uh, Singapore, Turkey. Those countries, including Australia, you know, the, the United States uh, military stationing in South Korea. The Australia, this country can be involved anytime when it is necessary for the United States strategy. So that's why I also came here to inform that, you know, the fact to the citizens here. Tell us about the opposition to these ships coming into the base, the uh-huh. South Korean base. It's not just the local people. You've got international people coming in to support you as well. Mm-hmm. What's it been like, the, the demonstrations? Have they been violent? Have the police, military been violent against the protesters? Let me say some statistics. The struggle started in 2007, and then the, this year hits the 10th year of our struggle, and then by the, the estimate, there have been about uh, 700, near 700 people, and then 600 times of the peop, uh, times of the indiction, you know, the, the standing in the court. So it's not people, it's numbers. So it means that the, some people uh, were arrested several times, and then they were imprisoned several times. What do people do to show their opposition? What are the demonstrations that lead to being fined, being sent to jail? How are they showing their opposition? Before the question, uh, I added uh, one sentence to the former question. There are you know, many international solidarities, and it's very important. There are at least 20 
uh, to internationals who are deported by the South Korean government because their support, uh, their solidarity to this uh, struggle. And then there are one French uh, citizen who got injunction order from the, you know, the immigration, and then he was expelled. And there was uh, one British uh, Nobel Peace candidate and who got exit order from the South Korean government too. I'm saying this to emphasize how international uh, we appreciate the, the support and solidarity from the internationals. Let me briefly uh, say about what happened last night. Uh, it's not related to Jeju, but very you know, close, and then you can imagine what happened in the Jeju island. What happened last night in Korea is that well, I wonder, have you ever heard about the struggle against a third uh, terminal high altitude aerial defense in Songju, Korea? That is now focal point of uh, Korea after Gangjong. And what is happening is that the third system is one of the missile defense system, and why said struggle is important is that one of the said system equipments is called radar. And then the radar can see through the most parts of China and some parts of Russia, which means it is very threatening to those countries. It is like a life and death for them. That's why the said is very dangerous to destabilize the safety and peace of Northeast Asia and the whole world. That's why that struggle is important. And the people there, uh, with their supporters, have resisted to the said system. But the South Korean government, under the pressure of the United States, uh, moved such equipment, some parts, this spring, and then the remaining parts last night. And then there are uh, about 500 people resisting for 15 hours, some of them chaining their bodies to the cars. And then it was uh, raining, and then uh, police brutally directed them, and then there are many injuries. You may know that the most of the residents there are elderly grandmas and grandfathers. They are in their 60s but most of them, they are, they are 70s and 80s. That's what happened to Gangzhou. Many people, we have been uh, going underneath the throne. We chained our bodies, and then the, we made a human barricade to stop the construction cars. What about yourself? How many times have you been in prison? Just briefly for three months in uh, 2011, yes. The charge is a kind of the obstruction of business, and then it's because I stopped the, the construction trucks. And then it was at the time that David Pine briefly visited me in the prison. So mm. are they putting old people into jail? You talk about 70s, 80s. Are those people going to jail too for their opposition to no, plans not, for war? Not, not all the people. It's about the 36 people. They got arrest warrant, and then they are eventually imprisoned. And then there are about uh, less than 30 people who choose prison, choose prison in refusal to paying fines. So 
the total 60 people. What about the general population of South Korea and their knowledge of what's happening near the border in those war games that are going on along the coast? What are the people in South Korea being told? I already told you that the Korea uh, was divided right after the Japanese imperialism, right? And then it was uh, 1945 that it was liberated. The Korean War, uh, which occurred from 1950 to 1953, they, they somehow solidified uh, that uh, division. What happened was that there was a ceasefire on July 27th in 1953 at the end of the Korean War. And according to the ceasefire, the military from both sides are supposed to all withdraw uh, from the, the territories, which means United States military had to uh, withdraw from South Korea. But the ceasefire, and another point of the ceasefire was that there should be peace talk within 90 days. But those two points are violated by the United States. Till today. Yeah, United States military. And what United States did instead was that they stationed the United States military in South Korea, and then they uh, made mutual defense treaty with the puppy South Korean government. So by now, there are about 2,500 U.S. military personnel in South Korea, and then about 80. Uh, U.S. bases stationing in South Korea. So the, those promises are violated. And instead, peace talk, peace agreement, uh, you know, the, we now have uh, the very aggressive mutual defense treaty. Why the conflicts along the Korean DMZ continuing now is that because we do not have peace agreement yet, technically, Korea war has not ended yet. So which means that we Koreans now living in very you know, intense uh, situation. Whenever there are war exercises, there was a very latest exercise called Ulji Freedom Guardian in which about 500,000 you know, civilian government officers and um, 50,000 Korean soldiers and about 10,000 U.S. soldiers joined. And then it was a 10 days war exercise. Whenever there is a such war exercise, North Korea, they are very anxious. You know, they are very threatened because such war exercise may be extended into war anytime. So that's why. Korea is still in conflict. And uh, you asked me the question, the, what is the response of the Koreans on the, such, you know, the, the conflicts? In a way, we South Koreans became very accustomed whenever Kim Jong-un says and whenever Trump says. But still, uh, I need to say that it's a very dangerous time for us and then for the people in the world because, you know, the United States, in my understanding, she does not want to give up. She does not want to end the Korean War. She wants to dominate 
the whole world. They wanted to contain Russia and China. And then they wanted to invade North Korea. In their war scenario, they wanted to decapitate North Korean leadership. So which is very you know, threatening for North Koreans. So our response as a peace activist is that there should be double peace, which means the United States and the South Korea should stop war exercise, dangerous war exercise, and North Korea should stop the missile and nuclear tests. I'm just wondering how much the people of South Korea know about what you've just said, because our media here, the mainstream, the corporate media, just talks about all these threats from North Korea they're building this bomb, they're building that bomb, they've let it go over there. They never talk about the provocation of these war games, of how many troops there are in South Korea, how many bases there are in South Korea. It's never mentioned. I'm just wondering if the people of South Korea are being told the wrong story as well, as we are here. I guess most South Koreans, many South Koreans, are not informed about that. I think it's a very important point in our history, which means the Korea division is sustained by the ideology uh, which enables uh, one part to hate the other part. And then that's what occurred in the United States, that's what is occurring in Australia, that's what is happening in South Korea. I do not think that the South Koreans are exceptional in that point. And yet there are still those family ties between the people in the north and the people in the south that's never been resolved to allow family reunions and people to travel backwards and forwards. It must be very distressing to a lot of people who fear war that their families and members are on the other side. Yeah. By the Korean War, about 10 million people uh, have been separated from their family members, which is about one-seventh of the whole population uh, throughout North and South Korea, which means that about one of seven people, they have the family members in the other parts. There have been some hope, and then there have been some exchange, uh, which should be also emphasized. For example, there have been the continuing, even though there have been the, the division ideology sustained, uh, there have been also some government accomplishment and the civilian efforts. And then it was 2000 uh, under the, the Nobel Peace Laureate, the Kim Dae-jung government, that the family, just a few portion of family members could finally meet in the, 2000. And then uh, around that time, especially after the Cold War from the 1990s, there have been the many efforts and then the realizations of the, the both sides, the civilian and the government, but exchanging and visiting each other. So we became to know more about each other, despite uh, the conflicts currently occurring. So the South Koreans are not afraid of North Koreans. South Koreans... But the, what the South Koreans are afraid is United States government, the warmongers. So the South Koreans do not think North Korea would uh, kill South Koreans, but they are afraid of United States provocation of war 
in the Korean Peninsula. As Trump said, it will be the Koreans who would be killed by the war, not the people in the United States. The Trump was openly talking about that. You'll be going home in a, a couple of days. What lies ahead for you when you go home? Where will you be? Currently, I am living in the Gangjong village, Jeju Island, and then I came to the village in around 2010. And since then, I have been living there and then joining protests. And then there is our uh, daily program of protest. They are the 100 peace bouts at 7 a.m. and then peace mass at 11 a.m. and uh, uh, human chain at noon. So it's from Monday to Saturday. So I will join those programs, daily programs. And then I also talk about what I learned from here, from the peace activists whom I met in Melbourne in Australia. So I will share uh, the struggle of Australia here to the people of Korea. And then I also uh, want to visit the Sosangli the sad basis, and I also want to deliver how the peace activists here in the United States and other parts of the world, they are continuing to express solidarity with us. Uh, the commander of the United States forces stationed in Korea, he said that the United States military want the South Korea purchase more weapons after said, which means the said uh, coming to Korea is for the interest of the military, interest, military industry complex. So I want to emphasize that the weapons coming into our regions under the name of defense is only benefiting the military industry uh, complex. That's one. And the second point I want to say is that what would happen uh, with the basis that we allow in our regions Throughout the history, those bases that we do not intend was used to attack the people in the other countries, in the other regions. So uh, with the Jeju Navy base, the Jeju could be very likely to be an invasion in a launching pad. That's what I am afraid of that. That's one of the main reasons that we should close these bases. The third thing that I want to uh, say is that we should be concerned about the climate changes. And the number one of the criminal of the climate change is Pentagon, the U.S. Defense Department. What happened recently was the fraud in Houston, United States, and then the not well-known fraud in South Asia. And then in South Asia, it is told about the 10,000 people were being killed. So that should be our ultimate reason the why we fight against the bases and weapons. It is more about the, the save our earth. You've been listening to Sung Hee Cha, one of many human rights and anti-war activists in South Korea. We return to Associate Professor David Vine from the Anthropology Department at the American University in Washington, D.C. And as I mentioned earlier, he visited Sanghee in jail in 2011. David, when were you introduced to Jeju Island, where a de facto U.S. base is now? Unlike Diego Garcia, where people were forcibly removed, many people live on that island. 
I became aware of the struggle in Jeju probably around 2009 when I began research for my second book, Base Nation. The protests, thanks to really amazing activism and the strength and stamina and energy of, of people like Sung-hee, began to gain global attention and global support. So I knew as part of my research, where I was traveling around the world to U.S. military bases, I needed to go to South Korea to see the bases on the mainland, but also to see this movement in Jeju. And I, I was extraordinarily touched by the power of the movement and the creativity and really love that one found in this movement that is still going on despite the ultimate construction of the base on Jeju. And you knew about that dreadful history of the tens of thousands of people killed back in 1948? I didn't until I arrived in, in Jeju, and I think it's an example of the history that has been hidden from people in the United States, the, the U.S. involvement around the world that has led to thousands, millions of deaths from South Korea, Jeju, to Vietnam, to Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a community under siege, isn't it? Would you put it in that context? Divide and rule? I think it's certainly a community that is under siege of militarization, a process of, of militarizing this island that had been called the Peace Island, which is now just a painful irony. And the fact that it's such a beautiful place, it's a tourist resort, I'd say, very important marine life, and yet they're willing to destroy all that for a naval base. It's tremendously sad, and if you saw the really strikingly, amazingly beautiful beach, it was a sort of rock beach. It's difficult to describe, volcanic rock that made up the, the beach in Gangjun Village that was destroyed almost entirely except for a token part of the beach by the construction of the space. It's just one of the many examples of the environmental damage that has been inflicted by the construction of bases, whether U.S. bases or Korean bases or Australian bases. But, of course, that environmental damage goes beyond just the environmental harm. It also uh, was uh, deeply painful for the people of Gangjong Village and, and for others who believes uh, in protecting the beauty of this, this really sacred place. You visited Sung-hee in jail. How difficult was it to get into that jail to visit her? I felt sort of honoured to have been allowed to go visit her. She got a very few... It was allowed only, I think, two visitors a day, if, if um, and maybe it was two a week. I can't quite remember, but I was one of the two visitors and, and felt extremely honored to have had that opportunity and luckily had a chance to, to speak with her and then write about that experience and to try to educate more people in the United States and around the world about her struggle and the struggle of, of others in, in Jeju. And that short time you spent with her, you learned a lot? I did and was incredibly uh, moved by her words, by her example. I already knew that she was chaining herself to construction trucks and, and was putting her body literally on the line underneath 
construction trucks to struggle for what she believed in. And meeting her in person only uh, inspired me more and moved me more in trying to continue my research to ask people to question the conventional wisdom that these bases protect us. Did you get to know other protesters and interview them as well? I did. Again, as a anthropologist, ethnographer, what was important to me was visiting bases and communities around bases to understand what their lives were like and their perspectives, to hear their voices. Uh, so often we hear the voices of military leaders and other government leaders. We don't hear the voices or see the lives of people whose daily existence is impacted and so often negatively by these military bases and the larger process of militarization. And as an anthropologist, how does it impact on people? What were people saying to you about it has changed their lives? The effects of U.S. bases and other military bases are, are complicated. And in Jeju, again, I, I think we have to see beyond just the the damage of the destruction to the environment. People were being displaced from their village. A village um, was losing significant part of its land. And that is a process that has gone on across the U.S. network of bases. Diego Garcia uh, is another prominent example where people have been displaced. And I've documented at least 20 other cases just in the last 120 years when during the creation or expansion of U.S. military bases, locals had been displaced. Most often it's indigenous peoples. And in fact, the, the first U.S. bases abroad, the first U.S. bases on other people's soil, were of course in North America, which I think is in critical to point out, given the similarity in the colonization process uh, in this continent, in Australia, and, and in, in the Americas. Did you get to also to know some of the international supporters who came, a lot of people from America, a lot of church people? I did. That, too, was incredibly inspiring to see people coming from around the world, rallying to try to support the people of, of Jeju. And one sees that in anti-base movements worldwide. Um, I was able to visit very vibrant anti-base movement, for example, in Vicenza, Italy, where there, too, um, you had people coming from the United States, coming from Germany, coming from Korea, from elsewhere in Asia, to rally behind people who were saying no. Um, in the case of Vicenza, they already had six U.S. military bases occupying their town, and the U.S. Army wanted to build a new one, and they and others in Italy were saying, no, we've had enough. And what was your experience on the mainland of South Korea, visiting maybe bases or people who are protesting against the bases maybe, or just people living near the bases? It was also very impacting, it, and South Korea, sadly, uh, demonstrates another and illustrates a part of a pattern that one sees around the U.S. global base network of now roughly 800 bases abroad, where just outside the gates of these massive, really massive bases, one frequently sees exploitative prostitution industries. So I had a chance to actually meet with an organization that tries to support women who've been in the sex work industry, either currently or, or in the past, um, and see some of the impacts of this institutionalized prostitution that has been 
supported directly and, and often explicitly by the U.S. military. What are your concerns for the, the area there, North Korea, South Korea, the push by the U.S. on China and Russia? Where do you see it going and what can be done? Well, in Korea in particular, I'm profoundly frightened and scared. I think this is a tremendously dangerous moment and uh, the sort of escalating really macho words of, of Kim and, and Trump are clearly only making the situation worse. I think what needs to be done is there need to be diplomatic talks. That's the only way to resolve this conflict as uh, most, if not all, conflicts. And my only hope is that soon both sides de-escalate, stop making threats, and begin talking about some immediate resolution to the current crisis. And then, as, as Sung-hee has talked about so eloquently, the need for a final peace treaty that would bring officially the, the war in Korea to an end. It needs a, a third party to be involved in this? Well... Uh, to bring the two sides to the table? At this point, there have been so many other parties involved for so long, most importantly, China and the United States. Uh, it, it's hard to imagine a situation where the two Koreas could alone negotiate a, a solution that actually might be the best possible solution that they kick the Chinese and U.S. out of the room. That would be very difficult to accomplish. But I think it does have to be part of a larger effort across East Asia to decrease the profoundly dangerous tensions that are rising, military tensions, uh, most importantly between China and the United States, um, but also, of course, involving other nations like the Philippines and Vietnam, Thailand. This is an increasingly dangerous time, and that's part of my concern about the role that Australia is playing in increasing the military tensions in the region. Given the growing U.S. military presence in Australia, it is playing a, a key role in ramping up military tensions. Uh, at a time when there was absolutely no need to increase the U.S. military presence in the region. The U.S. already had upwards of 200 military bases surrounding China. And I think I ask U.S. audiences and I would ask Australian audiences as well to put ourselves in the shoes of, of the Chinese or the North Korean and how would it feel if we were surrounded by bases or, you know, in the case of the United States, if, if we had a single Chinese base or North Korean base or Russian base anywhere near our borders, uh, people would call for a massive military buildup and, and some form of, of retaliation or response. So I, I don't know what we expect, how we expect China to respond. Uh, it, it should not surprise us that they have been boosting their military spending and trying to increase the power of their military in response to this escalation by the United States. Well, in all what you said, who's going to bring North Korea leader and the U.S. leader together? Can't be impossible. The impossible thing is that if it doesn't happen. Indeed. I think nothing is impossible. And it's, uh, I think, a, an important starting point is to begin to understand what the interests of, of Kim and his regime are for, you know, U.S. leaders and, and South Korean leaders that we, we can't just maintain the, the, the Trump line in a long-term U.S. government line of sort of macho posturing that, again, is, is really only making the situation worse. And why the U.S., you know, is 
sort of sinking to the level of Kim, it's not beyond me because I think as Sung Hee really effectively explained, the U.S. government, I think to some extent the Chinese government as well, have benefited from maintaining the status quo and want to keep the, the peninsula in a state of, of war, in a state of tension to allow the United States in particular to keep its bases on the Asian mainland. And there are a lot of them there. There are. And in the in the areas around? There are. There are approximately 80 U.S. military bases in South Korea currently, more than 100 U.S. military bases in Japan, uh, many of them in Okinawa, Japan, and there are uh, scores more of U.S. bases in Guam, of course, here in Australia, Thailand, Singapore, the Philippines, increasingly, among other locations, again, surrounding China. Meanwhile, as we discussed earlier, no other nation has anywhere near the collection of, of military bases outside its own territory, and no nation has, has bases anywhere near the borders of the United States. The most dangerous moment of the Cold War, of course, was when the Soviet Union installed a, a missile base in Cuba. That almost led to a, a nuclear confrontation that uh, would have killed millions. Uh, we're in a similar moment where U.S. bases are not playing a constructive role and are only um, increasing tensions and making a, a nuclear, a really unthinkable nuclear confrontation more likely. And all those bases in all those countries don't make people feel they're safe. It's just the opposite, isn't it? As we've seen here in Australia, there, there are absolutely many people who feel safer because of the presence of, of U.S. bases. But I think in Australia in particular, this is sort of a, a long-term mythology that the United States' military presence is going to protect Australia. Quite to the contrary, it's turning Australia into a target. It's a, almost surely a, a target of, of China. Pine Gap is a, a Chinese target, um, and in the case of any war. And if it's not already, it will soon be a target of North Korea. And meanwhile, there's no clear ironclad agreement that forces the United States to come to the aid of, of Australia. So while many people far beyond Australia feel uh, more secure because of the presence of U.S. bases, in many cases, U.S. bases are making their lives more dangerous uh, and making war more likely rather than less. Final word? Yes, I, I would, because there are reasons to be optimistic that uh, we can change this system. There are, I'm happy to report, people across the political spectrum in the United States who are realizing that this is not the only way to protect our national security. There are people on the right, on the left, um, libertarians who are, especially on the right, people are concerned about the tremendous cost, the 150 billion U.S. dollars that the U.S. is paying annually to maintain bases and troops overseas. They, people realize that this money could be better invested elsewhere in the U.S. military and, and, of course, also to meet human needs in the U.S. and elsewhere. But there are people who also realize that the United States, given technological advancements, can deploy its forces from bases in the United States just as quickly uh, or almost as quickly as it can from any base abroad. The, the strategic value of U.S. bases abroad has declined dramatically, and the extra cost involved, they're tremendously expensive, does not justify 
their presence. Um, so there, in Australia in particular, there are important alternatives we have to explore. The two countries could have a access agreements that would allow the United States to deploy its forces to Australian bases in the case of any threatened invasion, and they could deploy quickly. The U.S. does not need to maintain its troops on Australian soil uh, and doesn't need to maintain uh, its troops in, in most, if not all, parts of the world outside U.S. borders. You've been listening to three of the many international guests over the weekend for the Independent Peaceful Australia Network 2017 National Conference that was held at the MUA building in West Melbourne. Oliver Van Kolk from the Diego Garcia Indigenous Peoples Group. He's one of the leaders. Song Hu He Chow, an artist and human rights activist from South Korea and Associate Professor David Vine from the Anthropology Department at American University in Washington, D.C. And as part of the IPAN conference, War, Peace and Independence, Keep Australia Out of U.S. Bases, Keep Australia Out of U.S. Wars as well, a rally will be held, I think that's today. I think we might have missed it. That was at 10 o'clock today. And what they were, that, what the rally was about was to get rid of that missile base that Songhee was talking about, the, thud, the base that the missile defence system that can see right through China and Russia. So there's lots to do to keep Australia out of US wars. And any time that you have a, an opportunity to protest, let's do it. Join Ruminations on Thursday, September 14 at 12pm to 1pm as we head down the river to South Bank. For this special broadcast, we'll be handing over the mic to people currently experiencing homelessness and staying in crisis accommodation. So tune in on Thursday, September 14, between 12 and 1pm, as Ruminations goes to Southbank and hear the voices and stories of people currently experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. Hello? Listen, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy-like feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. The battle you've all been waiting to see... The battle of the sexes. You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withgar Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm, for a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? Call Barbie. Time it's on. The first Australian Greens 
study tour of Palestine to learn firsthand about the situation that has global impacts and the struggle for justice and peace in the region, to meet with lawmakers, non-government organisations and everyday people impacted by the occupation took place early this year. The delegation was aimed to inform and shape the Australian Greens party policy on the issue and in turn impact the role Australia can have in supporting justice and peace in the region. One of the participants was Victorian Senator Janet Rice and I asked her first where the initiative for the study tour came from. I've always had a really strong and passionate interest about Palestinian rights and so during my time in the Senate I've been in close contact with the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and so when APAN suggested we're having a discussion about what um, we could be doing as Greens to be furthering the, um, the Palestine campaign and the suggestion was made that we should have a trip to Israel and Palestine. I thought that was great. So basically it was cooked up between APAN and myself. And we were very keen to try and get now former Senator, sadly Scott Budlam, along as well, but unfortunately he wasn't able to go. But we managed to, to get a group together of myself, David Shoebridge, who's the New South Wales um, Greens Member of Parliament, one of our local councillors from Sydney, and another five ordinary Greens members. So you had Lisa Arnold from APAN as your guide? Yes, yes. So And Lisa was fantastic. And we also had Jessica Morrison um, accompanied as well. So, And, yeah, it was an amazing um, nine days that we spent together. Did you start off in Israel? We came through, basically we spent the whole nine days staying in East Jerusalem, so we said, I came through Tel Aviv Airport, some of the others came over the Allenby Bridge from Jordan, and we spent, of the nine days, we had probably oh, about two to three days in total, I think, in Israel, and the rest on the West Bank. Talk about East Jerusalem, there's a lot of stories we hear, a lot of problems there, what did you find? Oh, look... Um, we heard a lot from people, from Palestinian people living in East Jerusalem who were just talking about how increasingly difficult the Israeli government is making it for them to be able to stay in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem. Now, our experience was the most, Jerusalem itself being the most amazing city and the old, the old town of Jerusalem just being this incredible coming together of Jewish, Christian and, and Muslim faiths and just to... In, very vibrant, diverse place, but it's clear that the Israel-Palestine conflict is played out in Jerusalem almost, you know, with an intensity that's that's there, um, given it's such a contested space. The impact of the wall coming so close to Jerusalem is is massive, and. The fact that, you know, we've heard about people who have lived in East Jerusalem all their lives but who have to continue to just to be justifying why they need to be living in East Jerusalem and the pressure for them to be to be moved out of, of Jerusalem. There's increasing um, Israeli settlements within the old town in what have been sort of the, um, the Palestinian areas. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing contested place. But, you know... For us, as as people only engaged at the, uh, you know, being visitors there, that wasn't so evident until you, you know, went under the surface and were, and were talking to people about what was going on. Just give us an example of what some of the people were telling you about daily life is like. 
look, I mean, they basically people going about their their daily lives. It was more to just having to justify to to be being able to be start to stay in Jerusalem, so that if there was any and having to continue to prove that Jerusalem was central to where they were were living and working. We did. We went on a tour with a um, NGO called um, Grassroots Jerusalem, who told us about the um, the house demolitions that have been occurring throughout the wider Jerusalem and, like all the rest of the the country, all the rest of Palestine, where you've got buildings that have been built since 1967. Next to none of them um, have got building or planning permission because the Israeli government haven't given them building or planning permission regardless of, of where they are or what sort of buildings. So people are constantly living, if they're living in a building that's been built since 1967, constantly living with the threat of that being demolished. And so we, we did a bit of a tour through parts of, of Jerusalem where buildings had been demolished and where you could see the, the contrast between the the Israeli settlements and the Palestinian settlements where the Israeli settlements were, you know, looking like a normal Western city and then the Palestinian areas where you've got unmade roads, where they haven't got water supply, haven't got electricity supply and with um, demolished buildings sort of, you know, just left, right and centre all over the place. So the the system of, you know, very much two different ways of lives in the in the one city is, was very stark. And where are people forced to when their houses are demolished? Where do they go? Well, you know, it's wherever they can go. And so, and then you've got the situation of if they have had the house demolished, they've then had to move out of Jerusalem. They might go back to a, a village where they've got family of then not being able to come back. And, and that's exactly what the, the government is, is trying to achieve. It's just make life as difficult as possible for Palestinians who are living in, in Jerusalem, move them out, and then they can't come back. So it's, it's just this, the overwhelming sense I got of the, of my time there was just through so many measures, the, what the Israeli government is doing is to try and just, through the smallest uh, but measures of just making life difficult and uncomfortable, through to measures of arrests and administrative detention, it's applying pressure to Palestinians so that if anybody has got any opportunity of going somewhere else, that they'll end up sort of giving up and, and going there. And that's exactly what the what the whole the plan seems to be, to then um, to be reducing the population of, of Palestine. But of course, you know, for for most of the Palestinians, they are absolutely resolute and determined that no, they're not going anywhere, and they will put up with the oppression, they'll put up with the military occupation because it's their homeland. How far away from the Palestinian homes and businesses are these settlements, and are they actually breathing down the down the neck of the the villages? Yes, well, there's, I mean, the, the large settlements are just out of Jerusalem, which is now, with the Netanyahu government, have announced that they're going to allow for so even further expansion of it. There are Palestinian villages that are right up, or these settlements are right on the edge of these Palestinian villages. They're on Palestinian land. There's, in particular, one village that we visited, which was on the edge of the big settlement of um, Malay Abdemim. And this, you know, the... The settlement was within probably 20 metres of the houses of this village. And what that means is that you've not only got these 
you know, like apartment complexes sort of marching across the hillsides, taking up land that was and is legally Palestinian land. But then you've got, as soon as you have a, set, a settlement that arrives there, you've got soldiers that arrive there as well to guard the settlement. So you then have the conflict between the soldiers and the and the Palestinian villages and attacks on the Palestinian villages. And so by having having the, the two of them in such close proximity, it just it sets up the, the situation of conflict. And it's, it's not surprising at all that where you've got the most numbers of arrests, where you've got the most numbers of, say, children being arrested in the middle of the night for throwing stones, it's where the villages are really close to the, to the settlements. Or, or it's actually the converse, where the settlements have been established really close to the villages. So it's not just the soldiers that the, the people have to be aware of, it's the settlers who are heavily armed as well? That's right. So the settlers are heavily armed and, you know, many of them might be quite reasonable people, but there are, a lot of the, there are quite a few of them that aren't. And so I mean, we heard some stories of at this one village that we visited of where there'd been attacks by the settlers, where the soldiers then came in and supported the, the settlers who were doing the attacks. And so it was very much the Palestinian villages being under siege. And so we heard a number of stories of you know, people, of, of deaths and of, and of injuries from attacks from settlers and from soldiers. Did you go to any villages where there were demonstrations? Not when we were there. The, the closest that we got to um, participating in a demonstration we were actually at the village, one of the first villages that had been invaded by, it was prior to, to 19... 47, and so it was so one of the villages that um, had been invaded by Jewish people originally, and we were there on the anniversary of that village having been demolished in the massacre that had occurred there, and we were part of a, a demonstration that was just looking at what the remains of this village that remained, which is now sort of incorporated into suburban West Jerusalem. It was quite sobering to be there sort of on the streets with a group of Palestinian people very peacefully just sort of having you know being shown what the remains of this Palestinian village were and there was quite a lot of um, just look unhappy Jewish um, Israelis about the fact that we were there but very obvious on the streets and so you know being yelled at things yelled out of things out of car windows bit of abuse being yelled at us um, but people were you know very very proudly there sort of um, remembering the the Palestinian heritage of, of this part of West Jerusalem. Were you free to travel fairly well or were the checkpoints sort of you know you're from Australia you're obviously a parliamentarian we don't want you here on a fact-finding tour? Um, look we were able to once we were there because we were traveling in a car that had Israeli number plates, you're actually able to go almost anywhere that you, you want to go. It would, be very, would have been very different if we were travelling in a car that had Palestinian plates on it. So they're very much two different systems that have been set up. And so we, because our car had Israeli plates at checkpoints, you know, you would be stopped at checkpoints. Sometimes I'd come in and check our passports. But generally, we were able to get through the checkpoints, you know, very quickly and easily. Again, as I said, if we were, tr if we'd been travelling in a car with Palestinian plates, it would have been a very different situation, where you know it can take hours to get through a checkpoint. And there are also Palestinian roads and Israeli 
roads and the Palestinians aren't allowed on the Israeli roads? That's right. So there are roads in particular connecting the settlements and connecting the settlements with Jerusalem that banned for people with Palestinian plates. That's, you know, an, an apartheid system in, your, in the roads that are available. So you've got very different access to the basic infrastructure in the country. And so you've got the Palestinians that are having to be on sort of unmade sort of, you know, tracks basically around the country. And then you've got these major new highways that are connecting the settlements and designed so that they don't need to be travelling through Palestinian villages and that Palestinians aren't permitted to go on those roads. It really just and adds to the, you know, the other completely unequal access to, to infrastructure and water and electricity with a, the really key things. And Israel controls the electricity supply, Israel controls the water supply. And in so many cases, um, you have these villages that don't have electricity supply, they don't have a good water supply. And when they do have water, it's, it's, it can be very erratic as to when it's available and it's and, and, and very expensive. But we spoke to um, people in in Bethlehem who talked about the fact that you know the water might only be on for a couple of hours a day and all of the, you can tell the difference between the Palestinian houses and um, Israeli houses in many cases because the Palestinian houses have all got big water tanks on their roofs so that whenever the water's on the water tanks have to get filled up because it might need to last them for you know perhaps a couple of days. I remember during the assaults on Gaza over the years that they target those tanks with their guns to take the water from the people. That's right, that's right. You spoke a moment ago about the courts, the children being taken to court. Can you give us your experience of that? Oh, look, that was one of the the most powerful times of the trip where I was the first Australian MP to be an observer at the Offa Military Court, which is one of the courts where people get taken to um, after they're arrested. And I was there talking to parents, in particular mothers of um, teenage boys who had been arrested in the middle of the night just a couple of days before, and this was their day in court. The mothers had been there from early in the morning because they don't get told exactly when their son's um, cases are going to be heard. And these sons were, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-olds who had been arrested, and almost all of them there, what they'd have been arrested for was um, throwing stones or incitement on Facebook. And these mothers were just telling us about their, this was their, their life. So many of them, their older brothers had previously been arrested, so they'd been through this situation before. Um, and it was something that they, a shared experience with the other families in their village. There was one mother in particular who told us about her 14-year-old who was, trial was being held that day. And he um, had never been away from home before. And he'd been arrested at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning when sort of Israeli soldiers had arrived, bashed down the door, and essentially just taken him away for the crime of, of allegedly throwing stones. So this is the sort of ongoing you know, harassment and intimidation and oppression that all, virtually every you know, Palestinian family is, is living with. In the court system, there is a 99% prosecution rate, which is obviously ridiculously high and so it shows that it's, it's not 
um, a fair trial that these these young people are achieving at all. And what happens is that they are essentially advised to to plead guilty. If they plead guilty, they're likely to only get a three month prison term. If they don't plead guilty, they're probably like, likely to be in prison for six months or more. So the pressure is on for them to be pleading guilty, regardless of how trumped up the charges are. And we um, managed to observe one trial which was very clear. It was, this was for somebody who had been accused of um, incitement on Facebook. It was very clear that the, um, the charges against him were, had no rationale at all. And I'm sure it wasn't coincidental. It was the fact that we were there in the court and observing this trial. that in fact, he was found not guilty. So it was sort of the one in the blue moon occur- occurrence because it was a sense of the the Israeli military court system recognising that, you know, we were there, we were watching and we were, you know, being observers to what was going on. So those nine days has just um, increased your resolve to make sure that Palestinians get the, the fair go? Absolutely. And that there is, you know, massive amount of, of injustice that's going on there and and that the world is you know, largely turning a blind eye to it. Most people, certainly here in Australia, don't know what's going on. And the big difference between where you've got oppression and, you know, awful injustices going on in the rest of the world is that most, you know, if it's in North Korea or in Sudan or in Syria, there is global recognition that this is inappropriate, whereas the world is allowing Israel to be oppressing a, a whole people, having, you know, illegally taken their land and Australia is just saying that's okay and Australia is seen in Israel as being you know, up there, Australia and the US who are the, the very best friends of Israel. So we know that as Australians that if we change our, we're in a position that if we can get our government to actually just be even slightly more critical of the outrageous oppression that Israel is is putting the Palestinian people under, that would make a significant difference. So it's really upped my resolve to really continue on campaigning for for justice for Palestinian people. Thanks, Janet. Okay, thanks, Janet. And that's Green Senator Janet Rice speaking about her recent visit to Palestine and Israel with other Greens members to work out policy changes for the future. That's all for me for just about today, but I'll just remind you that there is a rally on Sunday, 11.30 at the State Library. It's in reaction to the far-right rally, which is called Make Victoria Safe Again, but the organisers of that rally is an anti-Muslim, anti-immigration activist, himself connected to the Australian neo-Nazi group. So a counter-rally will be meeting at the State Library at 11.30 this Sunday, the 17th of September, and I believe we'll be marching to Parliament House, but that will be announced on the day. So it's 11.30, State Library, this Sunday. Make sure you're there and make sure you've got someone to take with you. Great. All right, well, I'll go out with a little bit of music and, first of all, a couple of announcements and a little bit of music, and then it will be time for Done By Law. Bye for now.